Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, I could stand here and I could give you names. Many of those names you would recognize. Christian leaders who have fallen from grace, who have crossed the line, who have have sinned in a way that brought disgrace and shame in our eyes. But for every one of them that you recognize, there are literally thousands that you probably have never heard of. And for those thousands, there are hundreds of thousands of ordinary believers, followers of Jesus Christ, who have struggled and crossed that line somewhere. Some have had their sin made public. Others struggle with the the shame of what they have done and the, the what if it ever came out. And I'm not even talking about sin in general, just those sins that we in our 21st century enlightened evangelical culture consider the the capital ones. Never mind the sin which is an offense to God, which the Old Testament vividly describes as a stench in his nostrils. Things like lying, laziness, gluttony, gossip, Grumbling, backbiting, indifference, pride, etc. You fill in the blank as you're honest with yourself. These things God condemns just so much as He does the so-called, what we look at as the, the biggie sins. Well, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we left off a couple of verses there at the end of the passage we're looking at, because I wanted to save them till this week. And I want to pick up with those two verses as Paul gives a reminder to the church at Corinth and a reminder to us. It's there in your life notes. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a, a scripture that, that is very worthy of memorizing and keeping in your arsenal to combat temptation. Paul writes, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. What he's saying here is that There's not any temptation that you're going to go through that isn't common to other men and women. Everybody goes through temptation. You're not unique. And he says, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. There's always and escape. There's always a way out. Well, today I want to look at someone who understood temptation. The temptation to forget who he was, forget who God had called him to be, and he was tempted to enjoy sin for a season. He was tempted to give up, to abandon his position, to throw in the towel. In Psalm 73, it starts off with this. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
He says, hey, I know there's a God, and I know that he's a good God, especially to those who are faithful and follow him. Well, that's what we would expect to read in the Psalms, wouldn't we? But then this, he continues, he says, but as for me, don't you like that? I know God's good. I know he's great. I know he's got a plan. I know he's going to be faithful to those who are faithful. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, I know God is good. I know he loves those who love him. But you know what the reality is? I'm also capable of blowing it. This guy writes and he says, let me tell you, I almost slipped. I almost threw it all away because I envied the arrogant. I wanted to be like those who do whatever they want to do with their life. Especially when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That word prosperity there, it it translates the Hebrew word you may be familiar with, that word shalom, which means peace, contentment, wholeness. And this guy stops and, and he writes and he goes, you know what? I almost blew it. You know why? Because I looked at those that got everything they wanted. They did anything they wanted and they're getting away with it. And I saw them prospering. They're the ones that, that look like they're really enjoying life. Where, where, whereas this book, this book tells me that Christians are supposed to be enjoying life. And that's not the way it seems to work sometimes. Well, immediately as I, as I get into this, I'm like, where's this going? And I'm asking myself, well, well, who's writing this? I'm a guy that uses words. I want to know who the person is behind the words. What's your job? What's your character like? What's your integrity? You know, are you a good husband? Are you a good father? Now, we might assume because we're in the Psalms that it's, that it's written by a guy named David, but this one is not. If you look at the top of Psalm 73 there on your song sheet, you would see that it's written by a guy named Asaph. Asaph. Well, who in the world is Asaph? Anybody here ever done a deep dive study on Asaph? Okay, one or two of you. Why should we be listening to this guy? If you look at 1 Corinthians 16, it talks about when David brings the ark back to Jerusalem. Remember the ark? It's that little box made of gold. It's got angels all over it, and it was the symbol uh, the presence of God was there over the ark. He was with his people. It was the center of the religion of the Israelites. And David's bringing it back to the capital, and he's, he's going to set it up in, as the centerpiece and the foundation of the temple as God directed. And this is where the entire nation will look to for their religion and their worship. And here's the story beginning at verse 1. It says, They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each Israelite man and woman. So what they're doing, they're having a big party. They're bringing the ark in, and David's throwing a big party, and everybody gets gifts. You get a gift, you get a gift, everybody gets a gift. And now watch what he does in verse 4. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to make petition to give thanks and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. Zechariah, second, then Jael, Shimmereth, Jehil, an M word, an E word, a B word, an O E word, and a J word. Okay? 
They were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. Asaph was the cymbal player amongst us, and he was the chief worship leader. And Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. That day, David first committed to Asaph and his associates this psalm of thanks to the Lord. And we read part of that psalm that David gave them as our call to worship this morning. Now, David was a great warrior king, and he was also great at writing poetry in the Psalms to God. And when he finishes this one, he gives it to Asaph, and he sets him up as the worship leader, says, here, present this one to the people. Lead the people in this one. And what happens here is day in and day out, the processes, the procedures of the temple, Asaph, you're in charge of that. The people that serve, you're in charge. Now, isn't this awesome? You are the chief worship leader of the entire nation of Israel. The people that are, that are worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, and you're the main man for the worship. That's the responsibility given to Asaph. He does the psalm, leads the people. In verse 37, it says this, David left Asaph and his associates before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister there regularly according to each day's requirements. He also left Obed-Edom and his 68 associates to minister with them. Obed-Edom, son of Jeduhan, and also Hose, were gatekeepers. Now, Asaph, this isn't just a, a one-time thing. This isn't just a, a one-day deal. You're in the charge of the, of the temple every day. And I put a bunch of verses underneath in your life notes where it says that the man behind the story, in case you're, you're interested in looking up that kind of stuff like Lee's already done and studying about Asaph and, 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 and his life, and you'll see that this guy is responsible for hundreds of musicians. He's responsible for the worship in the temple of the nation of God. He is a spiritual heavyweight. And if you start reading through the Psalms, you're going to realize that Asaph himself wrote 12 of the Psalms. He's not just chief musician, but in 2 Chronicles 29, when the next king comes, he says, let's sing the songs of Asaph, the seer, the prophet. So he's a writer of the Bible. He wrote some psalms. He's the chief of all the worship in God's place. He's in charge of hundreds of men. He's in charge of what happens at daily courts, and he's also considered a prophet by his people. And he goes, I know God is good. I get it. I was brought up in church, and I know that God loves those who love him. But as for me, man, I want to be like other people that seem to do whatever they want, and they get away with it, and they're not just getting away with it. They're prospering. It seems like they're the ones that are they're really living life. And everyone keeps throwing John 10, 10 at him. You know, oh, as a Christian, you, you have life and life abundantly. He's going like, Really? Where's that happening in our, in our community, he says. The world seems to be having a really abundant life, and he's thinking about giving it up. We end our Optimism Factor series this week with this passage because in week one, we, we looked at the heart that's supposed to be thankful. And God says, I want you to be people that give thanks. And Asaph doesn't, doesn't sound like that right now, does he? In week two, we looked at God's promises about what he is and his kingdom, and how his church is going to work, and, and about the end. And, and Asaph has forgotten all about those promises. Last week, we looked at, at what happens with grumbling and murmuring and, and bitterness, and Asaph seems to be falling there as well. Today, we read an honest account from a guy that says, let me show you my life and what happened. 
And so in verse 4, talking about those that want to live their own life their way, he says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens that are common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. He's saying, God, where's your destruction? Where's your wrath? Where's your punishment? They're getting away with it. Do you understand how people do things differently than the way we're supposed to do business? Do you understand how many people are not honest in their taxes? And, and, and I'm called to be honest with my taxes, Asaph says. Do you understand people that do their own sexuality, their own imagination, their own fantasy life, their own intimacy, the way they want to do it, and I'm the one struggling to do it the right way? God, not only are they getting away with it, they're healthy, they're strong, they seem to be living and loving life. And it's hard to withstand the temptation when it seems like the system is broken. Have you ever been there? Not only are they healthy and strong, he continues in verse 6, he says, Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. Whatever they want to do, they do it. They're prideful. They don't even try to hide it. It's all out in the open. They scoff and speak with malice in their arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase their wealth. So he's dejected. He's thinking when it comes to their business, their relationships, their sexuality, their intimacy, their finances, their popularity, they have influence. Aren't you tired of what the world calls heroes today? Because someone has fame or, or fortune or athletic skills, suddenly they, they're able to speak out on anything and everything. They're experts on everything. And Asaph says, Why? It's not why do bad things happen to good people. That's going to be part of this. But God, why are great things happening for bad people? Where's the fairness in the world today? Their own desires, their own conceit, they got nothing holding them back. And Asaph says, I struggle because I've got this thing called conviction in my life. Everywhere I go, I've got this little Jiminy Cricket voice telling me what I should be doing. And I want to say, shut up. They're enjoying anything they want to do it should be christians having all the fun enjoying life that's the way the christian life is supposed to work you do the right thing and bonuses happen all throughout your life they do occasionally but but more often than not doing the right thing just doesn't seem to to pay off huge dividends in this life and Asaph says i'm tired i'm tired of looking at others who do what they want who take part in what they want i'm tired of going through this I want us to look at what he's focusing on and what he's doing, because maybe it's a recipe for what we need to get today. If you're in the middle of it, if you've made wrong choices, I guarantee that, that, that we will all have to face temptations in some area of our lives. And we would be wise to keep these, these, these things, keep our focus on the things that we should keep our focus on. So when we're thinking about giving in, when you're thinking about throwing in the towel, the first thing you need to understand is this in your notes there. Focusing on others, focusing on others will depress us. Isn't that true? Focusing on others and, and what they have and what they're getting away with, it'll depress us. 
If you're in the habit of writing, you could start at verse 4 up there on, a, on your psalm sheet where I have the, the entire psalm. You could start on verse 4. And 17 times you could circle the word they or they are there, the contraction. He said they have no struggles and then their bodies and then they are free and they are not plagued. Pride is their necklace. They call themselves they, 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 there. And just between verse verse 4 and verse 12, 17 times Asaph says, what about them? Their struggle, their sexuality, their life, their vacations, their finances. They're not giving. They're not obedient to God. I know how they do business and I know how everybody pads the bottom line. I know how they treat their employees or their employer. I know what they do on company time. I know what they're taking home. And everything's they, there, there, them, 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 them. And he becomes depressed by this. And I find that it's the same in my life. God, how come Christians aren't the only ones that win the lottery? Would that make sense? God, why are you blessing those that live their life and say, what? There's a God? You think he really cares or knows? And they're getting away with it. And he looks at they and them and how they handled their lives and their desires, and he becomes depressed. Now watch where he goes in verse 13. He says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. You see the shift there? You might want to circle it. Six times he, he says, I, my, I, I washed my hands. I kept my heart. Six times he goes, he goes from focusing on others to focusing on self. And understand this. While focusing on, on others will depress us, focusing on self will disappoint us. When he looked at what the world is doing and getting away with and thought, I'm called to live, live according to this book. I'm called to live the Christian life. And yet I'm the one struggling here. And he focuses on his life and he goes, look what I'm doing. And my life is surely in vain. Why have I kept my life pure? Sorry, God, he's saying, but your Christianity really hasn't paid off. And so he focuses on himself six times. Why am I doing this? Why am I so worried about being obedient when everyone else seems to be getting away with it and enjoying life? Why am I worried about doing the right thing with my finances and giving? And, and I'm worried about the way that I do my taxes, the way I'm supposed to be honest. When everyone else spends on themselves and they're the ones with the house on the lake and, and the boat and all the cool toys. Well, thanks for nothing, God. And he's gone from looking at them and others and being depressed, looking at himself and being disappointed. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure because, God, I don't see your blessing. And he continues in verse 15. He says, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. He says, you know what? If people really knew, if people really knew what I actually thought up here, they actually knew what I was thinking about doing. Do you know how discouraged they would be around me? What if people knew your thoughts? Knew what you were thinking of? Knew what you were capable of? And you say, no thanks, Walt. He says, man, if I, would actually, if I would, were to actually get up on, on the platform on a Sabbath, and, and instead of doing worship, he said, hey, man, here's, here's what I've been struggling with. Here's what, what I've been thinking about. I would have crushed a lot of people, he says. But because he's on a pedestal, because he's on a platform, 
he feels like he can't share it. And I don't know why in the Christian life we've gotten ourselves in places where we can't openly share, hey, I'm struggling. I don't know why we've gotten away from this honesty and this vulnerability. And I, and I thank God that the director in charge of all the worship of Israel, the man in charge of the temple with God's ark, the guy who wrote 12 Psalms, the guy whose, whose people in the nation see him as a prophet, I thank God this guy sat down and said, let me tell you about my thoughts. Because then it allows a guy like me on a much smaller platform to say, thanks, Asaph. I know how you feel. See, if the chapter had ended right there, you and I would probably go, hmm, now we know why that clown lost his job. You, know, you can think things like that, but you know you really shouldn't write it down. Maybe in a diary or something that no one else, no one else sees, but you, know, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't publish this stuff. Certainly not put it in a psalm. A psalm is going to be sung on the way to and, and, and from the temple. Imagine this on a PowerPoint. You know, you start, surely God is good, and everybody's like, oh, that's a great song, and then I want to be like the wicked. Wait a minute, what? Where are we? Are we in church? Good Jewish mothers are, are, are putting their hands over the eyes of their, of their boys and saying, don't look at the PowerPoint. And the guy in the back running the PowerPoint, Chris, uh, might think, oh, it's just a joke, and turn on and say, whoa, wait, you know, you didn't mean for that to get in there, did you? And the church walks away realizing, man, he crashed and burned in front of everybody. And maybe that's why he didn't say anything in the midst of his struggles. Because he knew people wouldn't understand what is going on with his struggles. But he says, I got to get this out. I got to let you know, these are the thoughts of spiritual leaders and many others. Notice the shift in verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. He says, this was so oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then he goes, now I got something to write about. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes and when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. See, focusing on others will depress us. When we focus on ourselves and when we get, get this versus what we deserve, we're going to be disappointed. But when we focus on God, folks, focusing on God will give us an eternal perspective. To quote the great philosopher Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. For a Christian, we have eternity with God ahead of us. But isn't it easy for us to lose sight of that on a day-to-day -day basis? We're people that aren't patient. We don't like waiting, do we? He goes, when I got to your sanctuary, when I was looking out there, I got depressed. When I started looking at myself, I got really disappointed. Because when I looked up, when I looked up, man, did I get a bigger picture of things. And I realized everything they're doing, everything they're enjoying is temporary. That nanosecond that we call life, that they get to enjoy, they better enjoy because that's the only heaven that they're going to taste. When I look up, I understand eternity. I understand an eternal perspective. I understand popularity and possessions and, and wealth and influence. I understand that all those things are merely temporal. They don't last. What I get Lasts forever, he says. 
and where I'm storing up my treasures is forever. And I almost blew it. I almost threw in the towel. When I looked up, I understood their end and who you are, God. And if I really believe there's a God who wrote this book through men, then, then God, I understand the end of life is just the beginning of life. And for these mere 60, 70, 80, 90 years, I almost traded in the next 80 to 90 billion plus, he says. He not only understood his eternal perspective, but then this in verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. See, focusing on God will also show us who we really are. He goes, God, now that I see through your eyes, now I realize when I was complaining and whining about what they're getting and what I have, I realized I was a brute beast. I was like those cows that go out and want to graze themselves and, and get all fat and plump and don't realize they're just looking pretty good for the slaughter. He says, man, that was me. I was so focused on my immediate desires and needs and the temporary things. How many conversations have we had with people who sat down and said, man, I can't believe I blew it. I lost it all. I lost the kids. I lost my spouse. Everything for one night or one moment of temporary joy or temporary pleasure. How many people say, you know what? I sold my soul for the company and I lost my family. How many people say, you know what? I've been chasing the almighty dollar and I don't have any relationships left. How many people have you known that said, you know, I, I, I threw it all in. And when you look at the big picture, man, I was a brute beast. And what I really deserve is not to be blessed. What I really deserve is to be slaughtered a long time ago. I understand the eternal perspective. I understand who we really are. And then this in verse 23, yet in spite of who I am and what I deserve, I love the yets in the Bible, okay? He says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me to glory. If you circled all those theys and, and there's the beginning, it's amazing. But you circle all those eyes. That earlier, that's amazing. But from 15 on, if you circle the use where he's addressing God, boy, does it outnumber them all. He starts focusing on who God is, and focusing on who God is will show us who he really is. I know the eternal perspective. I know who I really am. And God, now I know who you really are. In spite of who I am and what I have, you want to be with me. In spite of what I've done and my thoughts and what I'm so easily tempted by and what I'm, what I'm capable of, you want to be with me. God, I understand who you are. You're the one that will always be with me. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me. It's your counsel. And you're the one who will give me eternity. And then verse 25, he continues. He says, so whom have I in heaven but you. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What an understanding. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. You might want to go home and, and underline that in your Bibles. 
can you really say that? Can you say, hey, God, there's nothing in this life that I desire except you? Can you really say that to God? And Asaph says, there's nothing that compares to you, Lord. What do I have in heaven but you? There's nothing in this life besides you, and that's what I almost turned my back on and walked away from. He finishes the psalm with this declaration. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far off from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Focusing on God, folks, will show us what we really have. God, I've got you. I've got you. And a great relationship with God makes everything else okay. A great relationship changes everything. And he says, I'd forgotten that. I base this life on what you give and not on the simple fact that I can be with you, I can be near you. And I'd forgotten that. I looked at they and them and there and what they have and what they were doing, and and it made me depressed. I looked at myself and I got disappointed. But when I remembered who you are and this life and the big picture, God, I remember who I am. And in spite of that, I know who you are. And then I remember that I get a relationship with you, not just here in this life, but for all eternity. He delights in being with you. God says, I know your choices. I know your thoughts. God knows the times that you almost slipped up. He knows what you're capable of. And in spite of everything that he's, that he's given you and blessed you with, he knows that you and I are just one stupid choice away from throwing it all away. And in spite of that, he loves you and me. And Asaph said, that's what I missed. When I looked out there, when I looked in here, then I remembered what I get and whom I'm with. What a great psalm, isn't it? So what do you do with this? You know, what do you do with this? Two questions I want you to ponder this week. The first question is this. Is there in your notes? Do I measure God's blessings by the prosperity of life or by my closeness to him? Do I measure God's blessings by the prosperity of my life or by my closeness to him? When you talk about God's blessing, do you talk about your finances being taken care of and your health being okay? That's popular. Christianity Light is a great way to bring in crowds and and sell books nowadays. But the Bible's not about follow him and he'll make everything okay. If it is, then I can't find anybody that really followed him in the Bible. Because it's filled with people who suffer. It's filled with people who suffer for Christ's sake. It's filled with people that go through life and say, this is not fair. And God says, no, it's not. Fairness would be wiping you all out like he wanted to do with the Israelites last week. Grace and mercy is letting you live and letting you live with me. Sometimes he'll calm the storm and sometimes he'll just calm you in the midst of the storms. But there will be storms. Jesus told us that. There will be storms, and it seems that those that are closest to him are the ones that get rocked the most by the waves and the winds. And yet, if you're measuring life by looking at prosperity and blessings and what you have and and how your needs are being taken care of, well, I guarantee that you're focusing on what others have. Do you realize that you and I sitting here, 
that we are materially richer than 95% of the rest of the world? Well, we don't like looking that way. We like to look up the people that, are, that have more than we do. And we want that. We don't like to look down and, and realize how blessed we are and how thankful we should be. Then lastly, the second question. How is God a daily focus in my life? How is God a daily focus in my life? It's a question that you and I need to ponder. How is this focus happening daily in our lives? Because we live in a society that is bent and made to take us away from that focus. A society that's going to tell you and me that, that what we need and, and what we don't need. A competitive society that's going to constantly say someone has something that you need and that you need to get and that then you need to guard it so no one else takes it away from you. We live in a watch out for number one society. I'm not telling you that you need to spend two hours every morning in quiet time. I'm not going to tell you that you have to sing or that you have to journal or even have to read. You know, I don't care how you do it because we're all wired differently. I'm just saying that daily, daily, you and I need to look out there, to look up at God, not focusing on others or focusing on self, but focusing on Him and saying, God, how do I live this day according to you? Because it's that closeness that allows someone like me to not just be in your presence, but in a relationship with you. And that is the greatest blessing. If you're not focusing on it, I guarantee that your focus is going to be somewhere else. And Asaph says, hey, guys, we're supposed to play some music and, and worship today. But I got to tell you, I almost slipped and blew it. And I got to tell you, it was all about what I was focusing on. And here's what brought me out of it. Because I know you've been there. Or you're there now. Are you going to be there sometime? And if you're listening to this feeling defeated because you've already thrown in the towel, let me just remind you of 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Not just say it's forgiven, but to put you and me back on the path and say, okay, now start walking with me and use my power and my strength. Wow, what a psalm. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sv. MIN.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!